Thanks, Kath. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Belinda, um, the Associate Minister here at, at Darling Street Anglican Church. Uh, it's good to be back. I've been away. John and I uh, went to Vietnam for um, just under 10 days, and it was really warm some of the time we spent in a resort. And on the last day, I thought to myself, oh, it would be nice to get out of this heat. And now I'm thinking, that was silly, wasn't <laughs> it? But it's good to be here. There's the warmth of your company. Well, as Kath said, we're going to be looking at Revelation for the next three weeks. And hands up if you've ever read Revelation. Oh, wow, heaps of people. So whether you've read it or not, um, this is a question for all of you. What words would you describe? um, What words would you use to describe the book of Revelation? Just call them out. Weird? Mystical? Scary, comforting, apocalyptic, Jesus, exciting. What was that one? Powerful, revealing. Oh, yeah. Yes, mysterious. That seems to cover the full spectrum. Um, Well, I'm sure you will agree with me that out of all the books of the Bible, um, Revelation is pretty much hands down the most misunderstood and misinterpreted. And that is because it is mysterious, whoever said that. Um, And there's keys to understanding it. And without those keys, you'll be lost. And even with them, I think it's still difficult. It's filled with weird imagery and symbolism that plenty of people have gone to town on in their interpretation over the centuries. And I'm sure we all uh, know of some of those crazy interpretations. Um, Revelation has those scary concepts like the apocalypse and the rapture the mark of the beast, Armageddon, the number 666. Um, They're all there in Revelation. And it's filled with angels and evil spirits and saints and judgment. Um, There really is fire and brimstone. It tells about the end of the world, about heaven and hell. And it is undeniably challenging. But most of all, It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about a God who, despite how it sometimes looks, is sovereign, is more powerful than any power there ever will be or has been, a God who will judge the world, who has a plan for good for the world and for those he loves, a plan for justice that will prevail and that nothing and no one can thwart. It's a book that is filled with hope and encouragement And it's a book that throws the challenges of life into sharp focus. It gives us perspective, much-needed perspective. And so for me, for all those reasons and others, I really love it. And and so um, over the next three weeks, uh, um, we're going to be looking at an overview of Revelation here in church. And we'll try to unravel some of the mysteries. And um, it's my prayer that we'll be much encouraged in that process. So this week, um, we're going to look at chapters 1 to 3. Next week, 4 to 19. Yes, you heard right. That's when we'll be dealing with the beast and Armageddon. And um, then the week after that, the final three chapters, 2021 uh, 20, and 22, about heaven. 
so buckle in, buckle in. Now, I'm sorry, I need to tell you, I did have a whole lot of slides, but I confess if you... Oh, I do have slides. Ah, I'm technologically inept, if you don't know that about me by now. It, it's now known. Uh, so before we look at the first three chapters, let's just um, contemplate what life was like for Christians in the first century AD. Um, Jesus had lived, died, been resurrected, ascended to heaven, and um, he hadn't left his followers alone, but he had left his spirit with them um, as a constant presence within each believer. And the news about Jesus, this news that God himself had come to earth and demonstrated his power over death through resurrection, the news that anyone else who wanted it could also have this resurrection, this salvation from the power of sin and death, um, just by simply following Jesus. This good news quickly spread. And very soon there was a large group of people following Jesus, um, people who are empowered by the Spirit, known as Christians and called the church. Um, and it was pretty great at first, and we can see that if we look in the book of Acts, which, by the way, we'll be looking at over the next term, the book of Acts, um, here at Darling Street. And um, the church rapidly grew, and it was marked by love and by unity and by a concern for justice. And it was marked by a great joy in this good news, in this newfound hope of salvation. It was also marked by many supernatural and miraculous events. But, as we also see in Acts, um, very quickly, as the church rapidly grew, the Roman and Jewish powers of the day became threatened by this growth and um, threatened by the church's allegiance and very often fearless allegiance to Jesus as God above all else. And you may know that in the first century um, in Asia Minor, the Roman Empire reigned supreme. And one of the requirements of living under the reign of the Roman Empire was to worship Roma, the goddess of Rome. Um, but not only that, to worship at what was known as the imperial cult, that is, worshipping the emperor, normally after he died. Um, so after he died, he was known as divine and uh, it was a requirement to worship him as such. Um, but under the rules of Nero, who um, ruled from 54 to 68 AD, and Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD, then uh, this actually meant something slightly different. They each decided uh, that they were divine while living. And so under their rules in particular, um, there was a requirement to um, worship them as divine, as God. And you may also know that Nero and Domitian were among the most uh, paranoid and erratic and violent of Roman emperors. So Jews were exempt from this imperial cult and um, they were allowed to worship the God of their ancestors. But Christians, um, even Christians from a Jewish background, were not allowed to. So they, um, uh, following Jesus was considered a new religion and called a cult. And um, 
to not worship the emperor as divine was punishable by death. So Christians refused to worship the emperor and um, persecution of the church quickly became common. So the church dispersed from Jerusalem. It's gathered all over Asia. And um, in some of those places where the church scattered to, it, uh, per- persecution was very severe and in others not so much. So um, this persecution escalated. Um, so we're talking about the first century here. It gradually escalated depending on the emperor of the time until the early fourth century when Constantine... Um, Emperor Constantine was converted and um, he declared Christianity as the official religion of Rome and the church thus encountered a whole new set of problems. But that's another, (laughs) another topic. So in many ways, the church in the first century was not that dissimilar to the church now. Um, Because today in some places, as we all know, um, in Sydney, for example, the church's challenges are more to do with comfort and complacency, prosperity, um, apathy than persecution. In other places, the church's biggest challenge is persecution. Places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia, they're the top three um, countries where the church is persecuted. Um, being a Christian there means severe persecution. Um, By the late first century AD, many of Jesus' original disciples had been martyred and such was the extent of the persecution they faced. Uh, But the Apostle John was an exception and he lived to be a very old man and in the mid-90s AD, under the rule of Domitian, uh, he was imprisoned because of his faith on the island of Patmos. And I've got a map up there where you can see the island of Patmos. Um, And there on this island he had a vision and he recorded this and set it down. He described it as an apocalypse. And that's, apocalypse is sort of one of the scary words of revelation, isn't it? But really all it means is revelation. So um, this, the book of Revelation, is what was revealed to John in his vision, what was revealed from Jesus about Jesus and about, as he says in chapter 1, verse 1, what must soon take place about what is to come for the whole world. Um, So it's a prophecy, a prophecy that reveals what is going to happen in what is often known as the end times. That is the period of time in the lead up to the end of the world. And when we come to chapter 4 next week, we'll see that John's vision is of a door opening into heaven, opening into this spiritual realm, this cosmic reality that human beings don't normally see, don't normally glimpse. And um, we'll be talking about that more next week. So Revelation is a vision from Jesus and about Jesus, and it's a prophecy. Uh, But it's also a letter, because John wrote this down in a letter, a circular letter, which was intended to be read, um, uh, to be circulated throughout the churches of Asia Minor. And in the first three chapters, there are particular messages for seven specific churches that literally existed in the city, in the day, rather. And... um, 
We'll look at them in a moment. But the letter was meant to be for the whole church, for the universal church. And um, John Piper, a Canadian theologian and pastor, said of Revelation chapter 1, there is nothing that has happened between then and now to make these words of hope any less relevant or less applicable to Christians today. And I think that's true of the whole book, not just of Revelation 1. But, as I said before, there are challenges to reading Revelation and a few keys to understanding it. So we need to spend a bit of time uh, looking at those keys. Here they are. First of all, you need to read Revelation with a big picture perspective. If you're a details person, I think it's more challenging. Um, As Billy Graham once said, you need to to understand Revelation, you need to step back and look at the grand design and not get lost in the smaller brush strokes or be caught up in debating the details. And uh, I think that's a great point. John's visions are meant to show us the majesty of God, to confront us with the promises and demands of God, not to satisfy our curiosity about the um, minute details of, of the end times, as one commentator put it. Second, each part of Revelation is best understood in the context of the whole book. Um, with the exceptions of uh, possibly the exception of chapters one to three, which um, can be and often are um, studied independently. So picking out a passage to read um, without the broader context um, of the whole book is likely to be confusing at best and misleading at worst. Third, a challenge for us readers today is that Revelation is written um, in a genre that is largely um, unknown in a contemporary sense. So it's written in an apocalyptic style. I think someone called that out. And that's a genre that makes uh, very heavy use of metaphor and symbolism. And um, numbers and names especially are used um, to represent something else. And so that's why we have the 666 and the 144,000 and the 12 and the 7. And, um, for example, in the Bible reading we had this morning, you'll have noticed the use of seven. Um, seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars... It's not because seven is a lucky number. Um, It's because seven is used to represent completeness in apocalyptic language and and in biblical um, language more generally. So although seven here does stand for seven literal churches, it also stands for something else, for the complete church, the whole church, the universal church. So um, apocalyptic language makes much use of metaphor, but it's not completely metaphorical um, to make it a little bit more confusing. Some of it is literal. And um, as I said, there were literally seven churches in Asia Minor. There were more churches than um, just seven, but the churches that are named in um, chapter one and chapter two and three were literal churches. So discerning what's metaphorical and what's not has tripped lots of people up when reading Revelation. So this style might seem odd to us, but it was actually quite common then, and it was, although uh, 
perhaps um, not completely understood, it was mostly understood and definitely more understood than what it is for us today. And also, remember that this was written in a context where the Christians were under threat and under severe threat, often of their lives. So what do you need when you're a Christian under threat? What do you need when everyone and everything around you says that what you believe is not okay? What do you need? Well, you need hope, don't you? You need hope that one day things are going to be set right. You need to be reassured that God really is God, that he really does love you with an unfailing love. You need to be reminded that God is more powerful than Satan, that he really did overcome the powers of sin and death on the cross, that the good news about Jesus is good news, not just for a short window in history, but for all time. You need to be encouraged to hold on, to hold fast to what you believe, not to give in to despair or to temptation. You need to know that God is good, that God is really, really good, that he's trustworthy, that he will deliver, and that the evil powers that seemingly have hold will ultimately be defeated. But if that evil power of the day has a name, like Domitian, and he's pretty much crazy and out of control and violent, then it's probably not the greatest idea to write a letter designed to be circulated throughout the churches naming that person, right? You need a code. A code is safer. And in some ways, that's just what the apocalyptic genre is, a code. And uh, and this is helpful for lots of reasons. One is so that the persecuted church had this safer uh, way of receiving encouragement Um, but also because this code provokes thought. It, it, It provokes thought about concepts that are beyond description. How do you describe Jesus? How do you describe God or heaven? Code. Um... And of course, as I said before, this is a letter for the universal church. The evil powers that oppress and persecute, they change, don't they, from generation to generation. Their names are different, their language is different, their context is different. But the message that Christians need to hear stays the same. It never changes. Stand firm. Hold on. God does love you. God is on your side. And that evil power, that evil power, however it manifests itself, no matter how scary it is, it is nothing in the face of this sovereign, powerful King of the universe, Jesus. He will triumph. Hold on. You haven't made a mistake. That's one of the big messages of Revelation, as Kath said um, before as well. There will be justice. All will be made right. God will be revealed as the mighty and spectacular God that he is. Your tears will be dried. And all this is coming maybe very soon. So keep clinging to Jesus. It will be worth it. 
I want to um, spend the rest of the time this morning, about five more minutes, just talking very briefly about chapters one to three. Chapter one to three are slightly less apocalyptic than the rest of the book and um, a little bit different. Chapter one, as we've heard read this morning, describes John's encounter with Jesus. Um, John's encounter with this glorious divine being who looks like a man and yet holds the churches in his hand, who speaks the truth in a voice like rushing waters, whose face shines like the sun and who is so incredible that John falls down as though dead before him. He's so awestruck. And Jesus, you'll have noticed, describes himself in terms only used to describe God, the first and the last, the one who holds the keys of death, alive forever. Uh, Then, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses the seven churches, um, of Asia Minor or seven of the churches in Asia Minor and each is given a specific message that largely begins with a commendation of what the church is doing well and how they're being faithful to God and then it goes on to rebuke the church for something um, for some uh, area where they're behaving badly where they're being disobedient to God and finally to each of the churches urges them to overcome that is to hold fast to Jesus, whatever their unique challenges or temptations. And um, this theme of overcoming is really huge in Revelation. It comes up again and again um, throughout the whole book. It's about overcoming temptation, overcoming trials, holding fast to Jesus. In his letters um, to the church, in these messages to the churches, every time Jesus says, I know He says, I know what's going on for your church. So to Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. To Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions. To Pergamum, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That is, I know how hard it is for you. I know the challenges you are facing. I know the opposition that you are up against. To Thyatira, he says, I know your deeds, your love, your faithfulness. And to Sardis, he says, I know your reputation for being alive. And I also know the truth that that's not true. You're not what you seem. To Philadelphia and Laodicea, he says again, I know your deeds. I know, says Jesus. Jesus knows his church. He knows everything about every church because the church is his body here on earth. The church is his. The church are his representatives here to represent him. It's his spirit that enlivens the church. Jesus knows everything that's hidden, good and bad. He knows all the ways we represent him well and the ways we represent him badly. And he's not a harsh master. To Smyrna, the church that is being severely tested by persecution, he offers only promise and hope and comfort, no rebuke. To Laodicea, a lukewarm, apathetic, prosperous, comfortable church, he rebukes them, yes. But he also offers them hope, relationship with him if they want it. 
and if they're prepared to fully follow him. So Jesus is not harsh towards his church. He's fair. But he does demand faithfulness to him and his ways. And what the church does is important to him. So how are we going, church? Seven times Jesus says in those chapters, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have ears. What do we need to hear? What do we <laughs> hear at Darling Street? What needs to go? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to do more of? What do we need to do better at? How can we hear the praise of Jesus? Don't think, um, I hope Mary's listening to this. That's a hypothetical Mary. There's no Mary here, is there? (laughs) You know, sometimes we hear a challenge and think, I hope such and such is listening to this. But we're all accountable, aren't we? We're the church. It's true leaders are more accountable. That's true. But we're all the church. Revelation is a book for those who need perspective. And don't we all need perspective? When I was in Vietnam, um, seeing the poverty there, that gave me perspective. Made me stop worrying about the flow of my house, which isn't up to my standard. Revelation is a book for those who are suffering, for those who are tempted, for those who are uncertain, for those who need reminding that God does love them. And maybe that's you. And if it is, then know this. His compassion is very great. He knows his church and every individual in it. And he will help. He is present He's the Lord of history, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He will deliver on his promises, on every one of his promises. We'll talk about that more next week. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the King of the universe that you are indeed the Almighty One, the One who rules over everything, whose plan will prevail. And Father, we, we so often can't see that. And we ask simply that you would help us in our weakness. Give us ears that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Help us to change what needs changing, to do more of what needs doing more of. Father, may we represent you well. May we be a church for whom you have only praise. And we pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.